you have your Bibles, why don't we go together to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Last time together, we just kind of snuck partway into the 33rd chapter. We went down only as far as verse 3. Just sort of recapping where we're at, we come to this point historically with the congregation of Israel really at one of their lowest points. If you remember, we just went through the golden calf Uh, tragedy where Moses coming back down from the mountain where he had been with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, coming back down with the two tablets of stone with the uh, words of God engraved upon them, comes back down to find the people not waiting upon the Lord and worshiping and praying and interceding uh, for him and what God would want to say to them and show them as a people. Instead, he comes down, remember, and and finds them and really sort of just a, a... all restraints cast off party there's uh, dancing and lewd behavior and sexual immorality going on and really just a brazen idolatrous practice of worship with this golden calf that they had created and then all sorts of sensual activities that were going on and as a result of that God was ready to bring his judgment Moses interceded as the Spirit of God no doubt prompted him, and God relented from bringing complete judgment and disaster and just wiping out the people as he really justly could have for their behavior and activity and the offense that they caused towards God in breaking his commandments. And remember, he then, as he arrived to the people through the commandments on the ground, the the two tablets of stone, breaking them, no doubt symbolically reminding uh, the people in a picturesque way of how they had just broken and, and violated the commands of God that he was uh, holding there on those two tablets of stone. Uh, And at that point, uh, Moses, uh, seeing that there were some still who were completely unrestrained, they weren't repentant, they continued in this brazen, lewd behavior rather than being broken and, and repenting for the wrong behavior that he had just confronted them regarding what they were doing, uh, calls in a sense all those who wanted to be faithful and loyal to the Lord to himself and the tribe of Levi rallies to him and then they go forth and actually it tells us put to death Uh, some 3,000 men execute some 3,000 men really in a sense to diminish and to put an end to this very uh, ungodly activity that would have just spread among the camp and so they are uh, done away with and at that point no doubt the people now uh, sort of sensing the conviction the error of their ways as we said last time you would think that God would say you know what okay Uh, forgiveness I will extend that since Moses has interceded for you. I'll let you live and I'll forgive you. But this whole promised land thing, we're done with that. And that that was if you were going to behave a little differently, but you have pushed my buttons just a little bit too far. So all those promises, all that good and wonderful life that I actually had in store for you, uh, that program is over. I'll forgive you. I'll spare you. I'll let you live. But there is no way you're going to experience the blessings of the promised land and all that I had in store for you and as if somehow God would just take that away for them. And instead, though there were consequences for their sin, in fact, the last verse of chapter 32 says that the Lord plagued the people. Sin has consequences. And we have to be careful. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. God's cleansing is a wonderful thing. Uh, But hear me when I say this. I believe it was Spurgeon who said, God never lets anyone sin successfully. 
And we may sin against the Lord and God may be gracious to us. The Bible tells us, of course, the promise we have in Jesus Christ that is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it doesn't say to remove from us all of our consequences. Sin has consequences. Uh, and they are just a natural byproduct of transgression against the Lord. In a sense, it's not as if God curses us. We bring a curse upon ourselves when we violate the ways of God. And with the people, God was willing somewhat to extend his forgiveness, to mete out his mercy, to restrain his hand of judgment from them. But no doubt they still experience some sort of a, a plague and a difficulty, a, a consequence for their sin and for their wrongdoing as God often uses those things to keep us from returning and repeating the same errors once again. Uh, and that just shows that God's a good parent, that he understands that if I remove all consequence, then what will you have as sort of a restraining force in your life to cause you to not want to go back down that same iniquitous and ungodly path again? So God allows there to be consequences in our lives. And any wise parent may lovingly forgive and have mercy on a child, but realizes that there's a value of a consequence with the wrong behavior because it communicates bad decisions bring painful experiences. Therefore, I still love you, but don't make that bad decision again or else this is what happens when you make bad decisions. It brings painful consequences in life. So the Lord allows some sort of consequence to come, but yet we saw in chapter 33 that the Lord, it says, verse 1, said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people who you brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants, I will give it. So God tells Moses, listen, the plan's not off. I made this covenant promise to the forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'm a covenant-keeping God. My promises stand firm. And just because the people have failed and they've dishonored me doesn't mean I'm going to completely revoke all of the promises and plans that I had. The Bible says that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So God in his graciousness, and I emphasized last time as we were closing, incredible graciousness, says the plan is still on. You will still enter into the promised land as anticipated verse 2 the lord however says and i will send my angel and that just indicates uh, an angelic being not the angel of the lord which we've talked about before which is sort of a christophany or the presence the pre-incarnate presence of christ god says i'm going to send my angel before you in other words i'm going to give you divine assistance still god says in a form of my presence, I'll give you divine assistance. I'll send one of my angelic messengers before you who will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite, the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. And then God said, however, I will not go up in your midst. That is my presence. God says my direct presence will not go up in your midst. He says, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. In other words, God was saying to them, part of the consequence of the error of their way, God says, is, look, it would be good for me to, in a sense, draw back from you because if I just allow the fullness of my presence to be in your midst, my righteousness and my holiness, God, God says, if this golden calf thing happens again, I may have to just destroy you. Uh, so therefore, God says, I'm going to draw back and, and send an angel with you. And verse 4 says that when the people heard this, 
that they would still go into the promised land, but yet God was saying that he was going to pull back in his presence from them because of their stubborn nature and their stiff-necked attitudes. It says, when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. So a sense of grief comes over their hearts now for their sin, a sense of conviction. And, you know, whenever the Lord begins to, in some ways, you know, move his hand back from our life or we sense that the Lord is distancing himself maybe a little bit because of, you know, sin that is in our life. Again, we need to remember the Bible tells us that God's hand is not short that he cannot save, but our sin at times can separate us from God. The sin causes a barrier. It's a a continual principle in the scripture. And their stiff-necked attitudes and their rebellious hearts were causing God to sort of pull back and draw back in his presence. Uh, And here the people are grieved because of this. They're, They're saddened. They're beginning to mourn because they realize the failure and the error of their ways. It reminds me of how when David was confronted with his sin, if you remember, when Nathan the prophet rebuked David for his sin with Bathsheba, the adulterous relationship, and then ultimately trying to cover that up after he then also murdered uh, her husband Uriah and eventually he's rebuked for his sin and it's brought to light and and David crying out Lord you know create in me a clean heart take not thy holy spirit from me Lord please don't, don't depart from me Lord your presence that's the only thing I have is your presence and here with a grief in the same way the people now begin to grieve and as kind of an outward manifestation of that it says they're taking off their ornaments that is you know their gold and uh, you know expensive metals the trappings the things that they had prior to this contributed to the golden calf for the Lord had said to Moses verse 5 say to the children of Israel you are a stiff necked people God likes that term you take notice of that It's it's a very fitting description, certainly of what I've seen in my own life and the lives of plenty of others. He says, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. That's a really good reminder about God. When you think about how much mercy God shows us so many times in his long-suffering Again, the Bible says that we should remember that our God is a consuming fire. You know, God help us when we become almost overly familiar in a contemptuous way, even with the grace of God, where, as the book of Hebrews says, you know, we trample underfoot the Son of God and we, we despise His riches and the goodness of His grace sometimes and in a very flippant way sometimes become a little too casual in our attitude, in our actions with God, and we lose a sense of the fear of God. And this is what had happened with the people and while they're grieving and mourning. And God reminds them, he says, listen, you're a stiff-necked people. I could, he didn't say that he was, but he said, I could come into your midst and in a moment consume you. Now, therefore, again, God's calling them to repentance. Take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments, sort of again, these you know party type ornaments that they were wearing as they were rejoicing and carousing, and he stripped themselves of them by Mount Horeb. So we picture them now here in really an attitude, it seems, of remorse and repentance. That there's beginning to be some grief among the people, a, a sadness over the, the fact of what they had done and how they had offended God, and, and which certainly is a right response when we fail and when we sin. There should be a, a grief, a sadness. 
There should be a, a mourning over the error of our ways. And, and when somebody has no sense of grief or mourning over their sin or their wrongdoing, when they're confronted with it, something is really wrong. Something is really unhealthy when our sin can be exposed to us and we're kind of just kind of cavalier about it. Okay, yeah, whatever. Sorry. You know, kids can be like, sorry, what do you want me to do? You know? and, and, and people can be like that towards the Lord sometimes. And, and what an insane concept that we fail to realize. This is the living God. This is the living God. And, and here we see a, a healthy response where the people, it says, they're mourning, they're, they're, they're taking off everything in a sense that they had as outward trappings of what they were doing wrong and trying in a sense to strip themselves bare before the Lord that their hearts might be open to what God would want to do. In verse 7, it says, And Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp far from the camp. So almost another indication here. Again, though some people among the camp had failed, there were still those, we'll see here, who were still seeking the Lord. Uh, not everyone had turned away from God in this experience of the golden calf. There were still a, a certainly a remnant among them that were still seeking the Lord. And here Moses, in a sense, says, look, well, I, you know, I can't exist without the presence of God. So if, uh, if God's presence isn't going to be in the midst of this camp, then I'll go outside the camp. I will go wherever. I'll separate myself from whoever. Whatever it takes, I want to seek the Lord. And I like this attitude of Moses there. He took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. Now, this isn't the tabernacle officially, what we've been looking at in the prior chapters that Moses has been getting uh, instruction regarding. It's just another term here referring to a tent. This isn't that official tabernacle yet because we know that hasn't been constructed yet. We'll see that in the later chapters. But some sort of, it seems, a tent-like structure. And I don't think this was Moses' personal tent. It seems that this was a structure that he erected outside the camp, kind of as a place where he could go and just spend time in God's presence and, and seek the Lord. Almost how, in a sense, we might come to a church facility and that's a place where we go and kind of separate ourselves from our everyday activities and our home and, and just kind of a quiet place, a, a sanctuary of sorts physically where we can just go and seek the presence of the Lord. And it says that Moses erected this camp outside the camp, far away from the others. And it came to pass that everyone, it says, verse 7, who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So those like Moses who wanted to seek the Lord went out to this place where Moses would go and, and enter into the presence of the Lord. And we'll see in the next few verses where God would manifest his presence. The Bible says that if we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And that's what it says happens here, that the, that glory cloud would descend upon this tent as Moses would go in it to seek God's presence. But I love the picture here again in verse 7. Those who sought the Lord went out to that tent of meeting which was outside the camp. In other words, it was a little bit inconvenient to go out to that tent to go and to seek the Lord. But those who wanted to seek the Lord were willing to do whatever it required, even if it meant a little personal sacrifice, to say, you know what? I, I, whatever it takes to seek the Lord, if it means you know, getting off of my uh, you know, ancient lazy boy sofa here and, and not watching the uh, uh, 
you know, evening show here and what's happening in Moses Action News or whatever. I'm, I, I want to go seek the Lord. So I'm going to go to where God is being sought with people who want to seek the Lord. And I love this analogy here that's, that's portrayed here because, again, the, the indication, it wasn't convenient to go seek the Lord. There was a little inconvenience involved. There was a little bit of personal uh, effort, a little bit of personal sacrifice to say, hey, if that's where God is being sought, then I want to go. I want to go out there if that's where the house of the Lord is. And I think it's a great example for us. I think too many times we have to be careful. We can almost get you know get a little bit uh, selfish and, and somewhat childish in regards that we don't want to make minor inconveniences to do what we have to do to seek the Lord, whether it's you know getting up a little bit earlier or going to a place where God's people are gathering, where the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10 that we should not forsake the assembling together of ourselves. All the more when we see the day approaching, we should be. And, and here as Moses leading the way, as their covenant mediator, as the shepherd of the people, he leading the way to say, hey, I'm willing to, to take time to go out there and to just seek God's presence and spend time with him. Some of those who were among him said, hey, we want to seek the Lord too. You know, what a great example. You never know. It may be your desire to say, hey, whatever it takes to seek the Lord, I'm going to do that. Perhaps somebody may watch that and say, hey, we're going to seek the Lord too then. We want to come seek the Lord with you. We want to come pray with you or we want to come worship with you. And here as Moses went out there, others it seems followed and went out to that area with him. And verse 8 says that whenever it was that Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended. That, remember, was the, the sort of the manifestation of the presence of God that was moving around the wilderness with them. That pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. Again, when we draw near to God, it tells us in James, he draws near to us. Moses went out there to seek God, and it says that God spoke with him. The Lord talked with Moses. And I don't know about you, there is nothing greater to me than to just spend time in the Lord's presence and to hear the Lord talk to me and to just quiet my heart and to seek his face and to just give him the opportunity to talk to me, for you to grant him the opportunity to talk with you. And again, God's not a God of partiality. He didn't just talk with Moses because Moses was Moses. He talked with Moses because he was someone who went and sought the Lord. And certainly Moses had this very intimate relationship. He's such a wonderful example in the scriptures of someone who just had a very intimate fellowship with God. It says, verse 10, all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the door the tabernacle door, and all the people, notice they were inspired us as they rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So as Moses was seeking God, it was somehow inspiring the people to want to responsively worship God as well. And verse 11 says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, keep in mind here, this is a Hebrew idiom. The term there, literally, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, can't be rendered in a literal sense, because if you look over just in verse 20, God will say in response to Moses' prayer, show me your glory. He will say in verse 20, Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So again, 
Here's another great example of the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. We have to ter- interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. What you have here is not literally Moses and, and God speaking face to face because God says no one can see his face and live. You would be obliterated by the power and the glory of, of God's presence. It's actually a Hebrew idiom. It actually literally is a term that indicates mouth to mouth and not in CPR version. Don't get your <laughs> idea wrong there. Mouth to mouth, it indicates with openness and, and freedom the way that two friends would speak to one another. And the way that two friends speak to one another is there's no sense of concern about how you'll be judged or fear or concern because they have some authority over you. There's just an intimacy. When, when you speak to someone who is a friend, you can speak freely, you can speak openly, you can speak honestly, and there's this intimate, honest exchange, a very transparent communication that happens between friendship when there's conversation. And this is the idea here, there, that Moses was speaking with God and God was speaking with Moses, just like it says the commentary, verse 11 there, just like as a man speaks to his friend. Uh, there was there was nothing kept back. There was just a very intimate fellowship and communication. And what a marvelous thing to think about that God desires to have that kind of intimacy with us. You know, we say, well, again, uh, that's just Moses. That's because he was Moses. Well, listen, I, I would encourage you to consider that Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. For he says, a, a, a servant doesn't know what, what his master is doing. But, but Jesus said, but I've called you friends. Jesus desires us to be able to have a friendship relationship with God. Not that God would be some distant, aloof uh, being in our life or only when we have a crisis we call upon him because he's the you know, 911 emergency line when everything's falling apart in our life. So then I'll... You know, heap up a Hail Mary to God and hope he intervenes in my life somehow. No, God wants an ongoing, intimate, everyday relationship. God wants to be involved in your life. Do you want him to be involved in your life? Are you befriending God? God wants to befriend you. And to think that we, with the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, can have this personal, intimate relationship where we can speak to God and God wants to speak to us like two friends communicating, have an open dialogue and fellowship, speaking and listening to one another just like we would speak to a friend. That's a pretty incredible privilege that God affords to us. And here Moses had that very intimate, close relationship as he would go out. The Lord would speak to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then he would return back to the camp after spending time there with the Lord in that tent. But his servant, notice, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So apparently there was some measure of responsibility with Joshua whereby he attended more regularly uh, to be present at this tabernacle of meeting, this tent of meeting where people would go to seek the Lord. And even when Moses would depart, Joshua, who was sort of his, uh, his protege in the ministry, remember the one who was being raised up by his side to ultimately take over for Moses, you see him there present when Moses is present, assisting, just being around, being available. 
and being there by Moses' side. And even when Moses would depart, it says that Joshua wouldn't depart. He would stick around. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was dumping the trash cans afterwards. I don't know what he was doing. But even when Moses would depart after seeking God, he would still remain around. He just was faithful in his attendance, his commitment. He was there. He was present and around as Moses was. And even after he would leave, he would still be behind. And verse 12 says, Then Moses said to the Lord, See... You say to me, bring up this people that is to the land of promise. But he says, God, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, you've said that you're going to send an angel. But Lord, that doesn't seem to be uh, what I would need if we're going to take on this journey that you're leading us. And in Lord, that's not sufficient for me. I'm not content with an angel. He's going to say an angel is not sufficient. That may be a manifestation, a part of what comes from your presence. But Lord, an angel is not sufficient. I don't know who you're going to send with me. And I don't want to go alone. The point he's getting to here. He says, yet you have said, I know you by name. Moses knew that, that God knew him by name. And nothing's changed. Tonight, you should remember that God knows you by name. He knows you intimately and personally. You're not just some number. You're not just some person on this planet who God periodically just you know, keeps track of with some uh, tallying number. And a lot of times we are in school systems or maybe we're in companies where there's a whole lot of people and we feel like that all we are is just a number. We're just a per. We don't really mean anything. People don't have any idea who we are or what we're about or what matters to us. Listen, there may be a lot of people on this planet, but God knows you by name. He knows you. He knows everything about you. And he cares everything about you. He knit you together, the Bible says, in your mother's womb, that God was intimately involved creating and uniquely designing your life. The Bible says the very hairs of your head are numbered. So everything about the way that you look and your personality and your strengths and your weaknesses and your fears and all the idiosyncrasies and everything about your life and everything that you are, God knows that. And that's why it makes such sense to say, you know what, man, then I want to be in fellowship and friendship with God because he knows me in a way like nobody else does. Hey, the person who knows you the best is the person who usually can help you the best. And to, to realize that God knows you intimately, he says, God, I, you say to me, to, to me, that I know you by name and that you've, you've also found, verse 30 or 12, grace in my sight. That is, God, you say that I, I know you and that I'm under your favor. Now, therefore, here's his prayer, verse 13. He's, he's praying. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace, he says, in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I might find grace in your sight. Consider that this nation is your people. So Moses' prayer, he says, Lord, if you know me by name and if you say that I found grace or favor in your sight, then he says, I'm asking, Lord, would you show me your way? Show me your way. And not just the indication is not just show me my way or show me the way. He's saying, Lord, this is a prayer I want to understand you more. You know me perfectly, intimately, thoroughly. But Lord, I want to know you more deeply. If I've found grace in your sight, then this is my greatest desire is, Lord, I want to know your way. 
He doesn't necessarily say, I want to know the way, or, or I even want to know your ways. He says, Lord, I, no, I want to know the, the way, the way in which you operate, what makes you tick, how you think, what matters to you and what doesn't matter to you. You know, I, I think of how true this is in, in relationship as you, you know, get to know someone, as you get to know your children. You know, if you have multiple children and you care anything about your role as a parent, you start to study and to realize in your own children that they kind of have a way about them. True? As a parent? And you start to realize, you know, I, 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 under, you know I, I understand his way. Or I understand her way. And you almost relate to them with a sense of understanding and compassion and wisdom because you understand their way. And sometimes even with a sense of, of shrewdness and skill and how you have to, because you, you know their way. You know, so sometimes you have to almost, I know your way. And, and, and in the same way in a, in a marital relationship, I understand my wife's way, not just her ways. I'll never understand her ways. Let me just be very honest there. But I understand her way. You know, you start to understand what makes them tick and what they like and what they don't like. And you start to understand the way about them, the way that their nature is and how they operate. And, and this is what Moses is asking as a prayer. He's saying, Lord, I want to know your way. I want to know your way. I just want to know your power and, and, and see your miracles. No, I want to know you. That's what he's saying here. He says, I want to know your way that I may know you. What a great desire to just want to know God more. You know, tonight, what is, your, what is your strongest desire? What's your greatest ambition? What do you pray and ask for? What an incredible thing. Here Moses says, Lord, I, I don't want to just see more miracles. I just, Lord, I would just love to know you better. I want to know you more. I want to understand who you are because there's such incredible blessing that comes in knowing our God. He says that I might find grace in your sight. And he says, remember, Lord, this nation, that's we failed, but we're your people. He continues in prayer, verse 14, and he said, my presence, God says now in response, will not go with you, or excuse me, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, I want you to take notice here. God honors Moses' prayer by granting what he saw was really the desire of Moses' heart. It's almost as if back in the earlier chapter, he was kind of saying, look, I don't know if it'd be a good thing for me to continue with you as intimately as I was before. Because if I'm in your midst and you do that golden calf thing, he said, uh, I might just have to consume you and destroy you because of my righteousness. And the people begin to mourn and Moses begins to hear this. So he begins to intercede and cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, this is not good. Lord, just an angel is not sufficient. And he says, Lord, if I found grace in your sight, he says, I want to know your way and I want to know you. And, and it's almost as if God senses what's in his heart. God senses what's behind his prayer and what he's really longing for. And he assures Moses that he would grant him the very thing that was really the desire in his heart is that he sensed that, that what, what he was longing for was God's presence. So he assures in verse 14, he says, Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said in response to God, Lord, he says, if your presence does not go with us, then do not bring us up from here. So you have this beautiful assurance where God says to Moses, Moses, okay, I'll be with you. 
I'll go with you, and he says, and I will give you rest. And notice the connection there. God says, my presence will go with you, and as the result of that, he says, I will give you rest. Notice, rest would be found in the experience of God's presence being with them as they journeyed on in the direction in which they were headed towards. That reality that the presence of God is with us, the presence of God is with me, God says that is what will give you rest. Now that's a great reminder because a lot of times we think rest or peace is found in so many other things. Our soul is restless and whether we're agitated within or, or we're discontent or maybe we're fearful and concerned and we're always nervous and anxious and, and we're, you're just not at rest. And a lot of times we think if other things would happen, then we would have rest in our soul. Well, Lord, if, if you would just give me this raise, then I'd finally be at rest. You know, Lord, Lord if you would just give me, a, give me a husband, finally I would be at rest. Lord, if you would get rid of this husband, Finally, I'll be at rest, you know, and, and we think if it's this or that or I had this or I had that or if you would change these circumstances, then I'd be at rest. Lord, if you would make this turn a different direction, then then I'd finally be at peace. I'd finally be at rest. And God says, do you know what will bring you rest? My presence in your life. My presence in your life as the Prince of Peace ruling on the throne of your heart is a thing that can make the most restless heart be at peace and be at rest. You know that, that wonderful song, you know, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And, and though trials may buffet and all, we can be in the midst of the most difficult circumstances and the hardest times, and yet the Bible says there is a peace that passes understanding that can come and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's the peace of God. It's God's peace. Isaiah 26, God declares, I shall keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed upon thee. The idea there again is, is one's mind being upon God, focusing upon God. And God says, I can keep you in peace. You don't have to keep yourself at peace. God says, I can keep you at peace. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And he says, and you will find rest for your soul, for your soul. Man, there's nothing more wonderful than experience inter the internal rest in your soul of knowing God's with me. God's with me. And to just sense the presence of God. And here God says, what you need is my presence. My presence in your life. Hey, can I encourage you tonight? If God's presence is not in your life, then if you're restless because of that, then stop playing religious games and open your heart sincerely to God and let Him get involved in your life. And let Him bring rest to your soul. Nothing will ever bring rest to your soul. No person, nothing, no circumstance. God alone. There is a God-shaped void in your heart that only He can fill and satisfy that can bring the true rest that brings peace to a soul. And here God assures, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And you know, I don't know what you're facing down here, where you're going. Maybe you're uh, headed in a direction and you're concerned. Listen, maybe God's word to you tonight would be, don't worry. You're not going to be alone. My presence is going to go with you. 
And I'll give you rest along the way. And, and I'll be with you to, to comfort and to assure you. And, and I love what Moses' response is here. I mean, this is just the epitome of human wisdom. If you could ever consider human wisdom to be valuable, he says, Lord, I am glad to hear that, verse 15, he says, because if your presence does not go with us, then please, don't bring us up from here. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, if you're not going with us, then I don't want to go. If you're not going to be with us and your presence is not going to stay with us or remain with us or be with us, then he says, I don't want anything to do with any promised land. I don't care how much milk and honey you said is in there or how much milk and honey everybody else says is in that land. I don't care how good it looks or how wonderful it sounds. If you're not in it, he says, I don't want nothing to do with it. And I'll tell you, there is tremendous, tremendous wisdom in that. It's almost, again, the idea of recognizing that any progress without God is useless. And, and would to God that we would develop more and more in this area of spiritual maturity where we would say, Lord, if you're not in this career path, then I don't want anything to do with it. Lord, if you're not in this relationship, then I don't want to continue or begin that relationship. Lord, if you're not in this ministry, then I don't want anything to do with this ministry. Lord, if you're not in this pursuit or in this direction, Lord, if your presence is not in this and, and, and it's not something that you're involved in, then I don't want to be involved in it. Because, Lord, any human progress or effort or any supposed promised land experience is utterly useless if the presence of God is not with us. And here Moses, great wisdom, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, he says, please. He says, don't even bother bringing us up from here. We don't want to go. Verse 16, he says, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except that you go with us? So we shall be separate. And the idea is separate from other nations. He says, you your people and I from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And the point Moses is making here simply is this. Among the ancient cultures, they viewed deities as territorial. So there was the God of Mount Horeb, there was the God of the valleys, there, but they viewed gods and deities as territorial. Your God didn't travel with you. When you went into a new territory, you found out, hey, what are the local deities here? Remember, even in Acts 17, Paul figured that out when he went into the uh, area there in Acts 17. He said, I see that you're a very religious people. And he was finding out the different deities and gods that they worshipped in the local culture. This was a very common thought process. So the idea that, no, 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 God, God's not territorial. You don't worship this God when you're in this town and worship this God when you're with this group of friends or this territory. No, God is ever present. God goes with us. The presence of God is with us and, and the Lord wants to be in our presence. So he says, Lord, that's the thing that makes us distinctive, that your presence is with us. That's the thing that makes us separate and that lets people see, hey, there's something unique about you because your God is with you everywhere. He's with you in everything. This was foreign to the minds of, of pagan people who didn't really know the one true and living God. And can I just say this? The presence of God being evident in your life will make you very separate and unique and different from other people among you in this world. When people sense the presence of God with you, when they sense the reality, you know, I mean, something about your life emanates that you know God. 
Now, it's interesting. There are times where you can almost even in conversation recognize, you know, this person seems to know a lot about God. They can quote facts and scripture, and they seem like they know a lot about God. Then you meet someone else and you say, that person seems like they know God. That person seems like they're walking with God and God's walking with them. And, and, and there's a real distinctive mark that's there. And what a wonderful thing when as we walk in fellowship with the Spirit, Paul says, walk in the Spirit. If you live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in fellowship with God, that does separate us. The idea, it causes a distinction where people recognize the grace of God upon our life because the presence of God is with us. Verse 17, so the Lord said to Moses... I will also do this thing. So Moses is on a roll here. I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace. Again, notice it was all God's grace. It always is. Anything really we receive in prayer. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses is thinking, man, I'm this... You know, this seems to be fruitful experience here, talking to God and praying. So he just goes for the gusto here. He says, well, well, Lord, while you're at it, uh, would you show me your glory? In other words, Lord, would, can I see everything? Would just show me everything you got. The, the word glory there literally epitomizes in the Hebrew, it's, it's the kabod, the heaviness, the weighty presence of the manifestation of God. So he, 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 again, he wants to know God. He wants to know his ways. So he says, Lord, just show me everything. I want to see everything. I want to know everything. Show me your glory, he says. And the Lord said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said to him, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock and so it shall be while my glory, the presence of the glory of God, passes by, he says, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by and then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. The Hebrew there literally indicates the, the afterglow. The idea is like the, the burning afterglow of the presence of God, not literally seeing a, a physical back. Uh, again, as it uses a term that we think of in, you know, as an anthropomorphism, a, a description of a human body. The literally is, is my afterglow, my afterparts as I move by you. But my face, God says, shall not be seen. So Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God responds and he says, Moses, listen, I can't, I can't offer exactly what you're asking. I appreciate your heart. And God always wants to reward, certainly when there is someone who just is seeking him diligently, he wants to reveal himself. But God says, Moses, I am too holy and too awesome and too powerful that if no one could see me face to face and live not in a human body anyway. Now, in our glorified eternal bodies that the New Testament tells us that we'll get as saints, we will be able somehow to be in the presence of the Lord literally. But these fleshly bodies, I just don't think would be able to handle being in the presence of the eternal God in these temporal bodies. That's one of the reasons, no doubt, why we have to get new bodies and eternal bodies so that we can handle being in the presence of God because these physical eyeballs we got now, they'd probably just melt and dissolve in our eyes if we looked upon the glory of the Lord. 
And our ears would just be unable to handle the sounds and the glories of the heavenly presence or to hear God's direct voice. So uh, here God says, Moses, listen, you can't see my face. No one can see me and live. So the Lord said, this is what I'll do. Here's a place by me. And he says, this place by me, he says, I'll put you in that rock, sort of a cleft or a little cave area. This is no doubt where we get that song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Uh, and, and the idea is, I'll, I'll put you in this place and I'll, and I'll cover you with my hand in that cave or wherever he, he set Moses, which that's a pretty big hand if you think about it. <laughs> the hand of God. He says, I'll cover you with my hand and I will pass by. And when I pass by, I'll remove my hand and just let you see the afterglow because that will be sufficient enough to overwhelm you uh, and ultimately, we'll see in the next chapters, as we get to that point eventually, that, that that literally causes Moses to literally glow, that God's power and glory was so amazing as he's reflecting the glory of God, his face actually begins to glow from having experienced the presence of God and been in his presence, as we'll see. But I, I love how, as Moses says, show me your glory, that in verse 19, the Lord says to him, okay, do you want to see my glory, Moses? Here's my glory. Here's what's so wonderful about me. Here's what is so glorious about me. He says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord. Again, the identity of Yahweh or Jehovah. And he says, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You know, if you think of all the things that God could have spoken about in regards to Lord, what's really your glory? What is your shining glory? What is the, you know, the characterizing mark of just the, you know, the greatness of everything you are? Your glory. What is your most glorious attribute? And, and do you see what God says? God, it's almost as if God says, "This is the thing. This is the thing, in a sense, that I'm almost, if I could use this term, that I'm most proud of, and that I want you to know more than anything else, my goodness." And that I will choose to be gracious and compassionate to whom I want to be gracious and compassionate to. God says, it's my goodness. You know, David says, Lord, it's your gentleness that makes me great. Not the power of God, not the fear of God, not the righteous judgment of God, but the goodness of God. That God desires us to really see in his glory the fact that he's good that he's benevolent, that everything about him is good, and because of that, that he wants us to understand, therefore, he wants to be gracious and compassionate to us. You know, grace is, is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy's not getting what you do deserve, and that's wonderful when we don't get what we do deserve. But grace is another step up because grace is getting what you don't deserve at all, where God is just kind and he blesses and he does nice things even when we don't merit or deserve those wonderful things. And yet God himself says, I'm gracious and then compassion. And compassion indicates to be sympathetic, that God actually, you know, he condescends to meet us in our weakness and he's compassionate to us. And, and here, as God wants Moses to be able to have a sense and an experience of who he is, the thing that, I, and this is why I like it, it's the thing that God brings up. The thing that God brings up is his goodness and his graciousness and his compassion. 
you know, when you think about the glory of God and seeing the glory of God, what typically comes to your mind? What typically comes to your mind? God's heart is that you would see His goodness, that you would see His graciousness, that you would see His compassion. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to stop at the end of this chapter here this evening. I think it's a, a good breaking point, actually. But, you know, as we think about these verses here in Exodus, it certainly reminds us of what ultimately we come to realize that's available in Jesus. You know, as we think of the, the, the extension of the glory of God, how God revealed His glory ultimately to all of us in the most clear and, and perfect demonstration, it was in Jesus that the Word actually became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, it, it tells us in chapter 1, verse 14, again, regarding Jesus, calling Him the Word, that the Word became flesh and dwelt, he tabernacled among us. Again, God God became man that he could dwell or tabernacle by his presence among us. His presence was clothed in flesh as he dwelt among us. And we, look what verse 14 says, we beheld, what? His glory. We beheld his glory. What was his glory? It, it was Jesus in flesh coming to sinful humanity, undeserving and, and revealing what God is like and demonstrating, being the image of the invisible God, showing us clearly, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, look at my life. I, I'm here to reveal the Father. He says, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, look at that, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness to him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received. What do we receive when we receive the fullness of Jesus? Grace for grace. What's the glory of God? It's the person of Jesus Christ and grace upon grace, grace upon grace. God wants to continue to pour out measures of his grace like the constant waves of the ocean that crash on the shoreline and they just never stop. They just never stop. They just keep coming. There comes more grace, more grace. It never ends. You can't exhaust it. The grace of God available in Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, he says, no one, think of our verse, no one can see my face and live. Look what verse 18 says in the New Testament. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is from the bosom of the Father has declared him. God here says, you know what? I am going to provide a way where people can see me because we can see in a sense the face of God in the image and the person of his son Jesus Christ and be able to have that kind of intimacy think of the incredible privilege understanding what God said with Moses the incredible privilege that we have to know God that intimately to be able to see him fully in Jesus and just to receive his glorious grace and to experience his glory as we continue to get to know him